Herod the Tetrarch, who was in great favor with Tiberius, built a city in the best part of Galilee, at the lake of Gennesareth, and named it Tiberius in his honor. Not far from it, there are warm baths in a village called Amathus. Strangers came to live there, and many Galileans too, compelled by Herod to come from the area belonging to him to populate it. From the Antiquities of the Jews, Book 18, Chapter 2, Section 3, by Flavius Josephus. This month's episode of Retelling the Bible is a little bit different. For the last few years, I've been writing a book in my spare time, a book that I'm calling The Seven Demons of Miriam of Magdala. It is a book that seeks to allow one of the most enigmatic characters of the New Testament to tell the story of Jesus from her own point of view. Throughout the book, I use the original Aramaic names for all of the characters for various reasons that I explain, and so the more familiar Mary Magdalene is presented as Miriam of Magdala. The Bible tells us very little about this character, but I don't think that means that we can't know anything about her. Even just her name can tell us a lot, as I believe the second chapter of my book that I share now readily illustrates. Here, read for you by Gabrielle McCandless, is that chapter. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 4.1 The Laborers There once was a princess named Miriam. She was the most beautiful woman in all the lands and the daughter of Alexander of Jerusalem who was the heir of the kings and priests who had ruled over that city for many generations. They were good and wise kings who honored our God and the traditions of our people. But when the Romans came, they defeated and set aside the kings that the Judeans had chosen for themselves and instead set up kings who would do their bidding. The first of those kings was a man named Herod, not the Herod who has ruled over Galilee from all my life, but his father, who had styled himself the Great. This Herod, like his son, was no Judean, however, but a member of the accursed race of the Idumeans. Knowing well that the Judeans would never accept such a foreigner as their ruler, Herod arranged to be married to Miriam, the daughter of Alexander, so that the Judeans might see him as having a part in their royal family. On the day of the wedding, I am told, all of the maidens of Judea and Galilee wept and mourned for our beautiful princess, who was being forced to marry this filthy and unclean Idumean. It was not a happy marriage, but Miriam did manage to gain some concessions from her husband. It was at her insistence, for example, that her brother was made chief priest in Jerusalem. But then he died within a year, murdered, it was said, at the king's orders. 
But even then, Miriam remained devoted to her husband, as was her duty, despite his continued affronts to her and her family. Though he was called a king, everyone knew that the person that Herod served first was not the people that he ruled, but rather his masters in Rome. They held the true power over his kingdom and even over his own life. Whenever he did anything that would slight or irritate them, he would be obligated to drop everything and attend to them at a time and place that pleased them. Of course, whenever this happened, Herod never knew whether he would be returning as the Romans might easily kill him or send him into exile. So Herod fell into the habit of leaving his wife, Queen Miriam, under the guard of his most trusted servants. He would give them clear instruction that, should he fail to return, their first duty would be to kill the queen. When Miriam eventually discovered Herod's betrayal of her in this fashion, she was furious and grew cold and angry with him. But even then, she did not violate her marriage by failing to support him, though this did her no good. Herod could not tolerate her coldness. His court was infested with the lowest of characters who were only too happy to spin lies and false accusations. They convinced the king that his wife was plotting against him and his throne, seeking to retake it for the glory of her own family, and Herod feared nothing more than to lose his throne to someone who had a better claim to rule than he. Queen Miriam was arrested, put on trial, and swiftly executed for treason to the everlasting sorrow of her subjects everywhere, who vowed that they would never forget her. I know all of these events well, even though they took place many years before I was born, because her story was the one I most longed to hear all through my childhood. Again and again, I would beg my parents, my uncles, and my aunts to tell me everything about the princess, to describe her hair, her face, and her jeweled clothing to me. I would ask them to tell me of her tears and her sorrows. I would even relish the hideous descriptions of her husband and his monstrous behavior. I identified with her most of all, of course, because my parents told me that they had named me for love of her and her family, and for the hatred of Herod and his foul brood. Knowing that I was named for this princess always made me feel special and unique. I especially loved it when Abba called me his Princess Miriam. Of course, I eventually learned that I was not so unique as I thought. Mine was far from the only family who named their daughter for the princess. I learned this in my later years as I traveled throughout Galilee and even into Judea. I met many Miriams wherever I went. Some days, it seemed, every second woman I met bore the name. So beloved was our princess that families everywhere had done the same thing as my parents when they had a daughter. But when I was a child in my own town, I was the only one I knew by that name. My town was called Magdala Nunaya, the Tower of Fish. It was the largest and most prosperous fishing town on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. For generations, the families of our town had fished the local waters and done well enough by doing so. People also brought in their catches from other nearby towns like Rakat and Amathus so that they could be processed. The main road passed by our town and so it was a good place for sending out the processed fish. 
There were also some families in town who worked as weavers and dyers of cloth. Between the fishing, processing, weaving, and dyeing, I suppose that our town was more fortunate than many places where work was harder to come by. Most of the time, people just called our town Magdala, or Tower. If you asked the families who worked in the industries of drying and salting fish why we called it that, they would have told you that the tower referred to the great drying racks that towered over their district. Those who worked in making clothes would point to the great dyeing vat, which they called the Tower of Dyers. These were imposing structures, to be sure, but the fishing families knew that they were not the true origin of the name of our town. The fisher folk all knew that the true tower of our town was the great cliff, the left shoulder of Mount Arabel, that loomed over the whole area. The cliff was visible far out at sea, and every fisherman had many stories, as fishers always do, of their exploits out on the waves, and every single story seemed to end with him catching sight of the great cliff of Arbel and how it guided him safely and unerringly home to family and hearth. Whoever we were, fishers, processors, or dyers, most of us struggled to get by often enough, but, so long as the authorities largely ignored us, we could do all right. That was the key escaping notice. That hadn't been too hard for the people of Magdala since the days of King Herod the Great. He had based his administration in far-off regions and built, we heard, a very Roman city in Caesarea. So long as the taxes were paid and there wasn't any unrest, why would he bother with a town like ours? Things went much the same as well in the days of his son, Herod Antipas, who ruled over Galilee, and at least at first. He had fewer territories to distract him, of course, but he built his capital up in the hills at Sephorus, to the south of us, and that tended to concentrate his and his officials' attention up there. They seemed to have little interest in the doings on our lake. So long as the taxes were paid and no trouble was caused, we were left to our own affairs. All of that changed when I was nine, the year when Herod decided to move his capital from Sephorus. He built a whole new city that he named after the emperor in Rome, Tiberius Caesar. He put it in the very worst place any of us could imagine, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, just half a day's journey along the coast from our village. We were suddenly living directly under the royal gaze, and everyone knew that was not a good place to be. That wasn't the worst of it that we would only understand later. All that we knew in my ninth year was that there were suddenly all of these building projects going on just up the road. Building a whole city takes many laborers and they soon began to gravitate to the area. Since we were so close to the road, many of the laborers passed through our town. The ones that we saw weren't highly regarded workers like engineers or architects, they were the grunt workers the men who came to move huge piles of stone and roughly cut the wood and stone that others would build into the houses and villas and public buildings and temples. The best that the people we saw could hope for was work as day laborers. They would show up at the various work sites around the growing city hoping to be hired to perform whatever labor was most needed. If they were lucky, they would be paid a denarius to work all day from sunrise to sunset. If they were unlucky and happened to be in the wrong place where the overseers were hiring, they would get nothing at all. Looking at these laborers, 
Many of them wouldn't survive too many days of not being hired. They were thin and wore clothes that were little better than rags. A lot of them, I learned later, had been in the habit of finding work in Herod's old capital of Sephoris, which he had been building up for decades before shifting to this new site. Though they came from other places, many of them, it seemed, were Judeans who had lost their family farms in the time of Herod the Great. They had settled down in nearby villages like Gath Hefer, Cana, and Nazareth. Now the work in Sephoris had dried up, and they had struggled to make their way down from the hills to the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. That is how things have always worked. The great and mighty make their plans and schemes, and the lowly are left to put the pieces of their lives back together in their wake. We saw many workers come through our village on their way to Tiberias that spring. Our people did the best that we could to offer them some hospitality. that I've forgotten many of them, but there was one pair that I would never forget. They were a father and a son who came from the village of Nazareth, though they said that their family had its roots in previous generations in Judea near a town called Bethlehem. Like so many families, theirs had been displaced by the events that had conspired to disrupt their lives. Judging from the tools they carried, a hammer and a small collection of chisels, they were mostly stone workers. The father was named Yosef. He must have been in his late thirties and carried many of his years of hard labor heavily. His arms were marked with scars and the knuckles of his fingers were swollen and stiff. He walked with a stoop and his body was worn down, but his eyes carried a fire within them. The son, Yeshua, was about the age of my older brother. He had seen perhaps sixteen Passovers, I knew as soon as I saw him that I would never forget him. Something about him said that he was destined to do more than work on houses in Herod's new city. The father seemed to depend on his son for everything, and I could well imagine that on the work site the elder would pass on his wisdom and experience, but the younger one would be the one straining his muscles and doing most of the hard labor. My people believed that it was a sacred obligation to offer hospitality to strangers and travelers, that Father Abraham and Mother Sarah had even hosted their God by doing so. There was no way that we could have hosted all of the strangers that passed through Magdala that year, but my father did so often enough and had brought Yosef and his son to our house late one afternoon. As the only daughter, it fell to me to serve our guests. I was not expected to speak, of course, only to serve in silence. As I came in and out of the room carrying the bread, the fish, the wine, and whatever else I could find in our meager stores, I listened eagerly to everything the men discussed. At that time, places like Nazareth and Sephoris could have been as strange and exotic as Rome or Alexandria, as far as I was concerned. They were talking about a world that I could scarcely even imagine, and so I hung on every word they spoke. As usually happens, the elders dominated the conversation. Young Yeshua was almost as silent as I was, and waited respectfully for his father to share from his wisdom and experience as well as to pass on all the important news. He was content enough to listen, but every time I entered the room he would turn and look straight at me and it was unnerving. I was used to being ignored, to being almost invisible. 
but I didn't know what to do with his attention. This all happened in the days just after I'd been officially betrothed to Yasabar Matichia. I hadn't even decided what I felt about the betrothal at the time, but I found the celebration of it bewildering. Our two families had met together over a meal to exchange promises. Whatever that meeting was about, it hadn't seemed to be about me. The conversation was all about family and ancestors. According to the stories that were told, both Yasa and I could trace our descent to the most legendary fishers that had ever cast a net in the Sea of Galilee. No one talked about me and what I had to offer, except for a few comments about the wideness of my hips. The only one who really looked at me that evening was Yasa. The old friend, and sometimes enemy, of my childhood had grown into a good-looking young man with strong limbs and a rugged, handsome face. He had already started to build a reputation for himself as a good fisher and as a good brawler when the occasion called for it. He and he alone looked at me that night with an intensity that frightened me, but also gave me a thrill inside. I know that I flushed terribly and was suddenly very glad that no one else was paying any attention to me. But it wasn't like that with this Yeshua when he stayed at our house. He looked at me as if he thought that I might have some thoughts or opinions that mattered, almost as if he expected me to say something worthwhile and meaningful. The very idea of that, when it struck me, made me smile and almost laugh. That's when I saw him smile, too. Almost as if he had understood exactly what I was thinking at that moment. I think that was what set him apart. It wasn't necessarily that other people saw special things about him so much as it was that he saw something special and unique in others. In just about anyone that he met, in fact. It didn't matter if you were a prostitute, a tax collector, or a nine-year-old, recently betrothed girl. He expected great things of you. He also tended to bring those things out of you. Later that evening, after the elders had gone to bed and my brothers had returned home, Yeshua sat and talked with them for quite some time while I mostly listened. Our people live for stories and pass the time telling ancient tales of Abraham, Moshe, Shemuel, David, and all the other great heroes of our nation. There is a great library of books that is kept in the temple at Jerusalem in which, they say, these stories are written down. Copies of a few of the books are even kept in the synagogue in Magdala, one of the few stone synagogues to be found in Galilee and a point of great civic pride. Sometimes, when we gathered there, seated on benches around a great stone on which is carved an image of that distant temple in Jerusalem, one of the two elders who were capable of doing so would read from one of those books. But, though that was a sacred and solemn ritual, works printed on parchment seemed so dead and lifeless to most of us, these stories are living things and must be told and discussed, not simply lies, dead marks on rolls of parchment. So my brothers and their guests were repeating and discussing these stories. When a traveler passes through any place, it is also an opportunity for them to hear the local stories and to share the stories of their own people. 
My brothers told Yeshua the story of the great catch of fish from my childhood, which had become a legend in our town in the years since. They told it in such a way as to make our guests hoot with laughter. He seemed to be particularly interested in the detail about how they had only caught the fish after trying all night long, and after having cast the net from the far side of the boat. As good as my brother's story was, the young builder told much better ones. He told the kinds of stories that would make you wonder about what they might mean for many days afterwards. Not in many of his stories, strangely, seemed to have much to do with working with wood or stone, as you might expect. He actually spoke much more often about the troubles and problems that farmers have in raising their crops. It made me wonder if he would have preferred to have been a simple farmer, and what the nation would have missed out on if he had known the contentment of such a life. Few enough people knew such contentment in the days of King Herod. He did tell one story, however, that seemed to come out of his experience on building sites. Once there was a master builder, he said, who was given the task of building an entire wing of the king's new palace in one day. So he went out at the crack of dawn to hire some laborers to work on his project. He found them sitting and waiting for someone to hire them as usual in the marketplace of the city. Now, this master builder was foolish, and he wanted to keep as much of his payment as possible, and so, instead of hiring all the available workers, he only hired a few, and he put them to work on his site. He worked them as hard as he could, but eventually he realized that he'd never get his project built without more laborers. So he went down to the marketplace again to hire some more, but just a few. Again, he didn't want to spend too much. Well, as the day went on, he fell further and further behind because he just didn't have the manpower to get it done, and he only had to keep going back to the marketplace, but every time he hired a few workers, it was never enough. He had to keep going back. Now, what do you suppose happened to that master builder at the end of the day? Yeshua asked. What happened? answered my brother. At the end of the day, I'll bet he didn't get everything built like he was supposed to, I hope that the king's stewards punished him. That man was a fool. The man was a fool, replied Yeshua, but his punishment for failing to finish the project wasn't the worst part of it. What could be worse than that? Another brother said. All that men like that care about is the power and honor they get from the king. No, I was bold to interject. No, there was one other thing they care about even more. They care about money. The thing that truly bothered that master builder was the fact that he had to pay a full day's wages to more workers than if he had just been a little less stingy and willing to actually hire enough men to get the job done at the beginning of the day. My brothers had probably forgotten that I was even there listening in and were surprised to hear me speak up like that in front of a strange man. One of them even started to rebuke me for my lack of modesty but when he saw how Yeshua smiled and nodded at what I said, he fell silent quickly enough. They all fell silent to consider the meaning of such a bizarre story. I actually heard Yeshua tell that particular story a number of times. Each time he told it a little bit differently and adapted it to the audience that was listening to him. 
but I will never forget the first time I heard it in my Abba's house in Magdala. Joseph and Yeshua left for Tiberias early the next morning, and I never thought that I would see either of them again. And indeed, I never did see Joseph. My father heard somewhat later, while delivering fish in the city, about the accident. It seemed that Joseph's experienced eye had served him well to the end. He had seen that the tower they had been working on was about to collapse, and managed to push his son and another young worker out of its path. He had grown too slow, however to save himself. Apparently, Yeshua had left soon afterwards to return Yosef's body to his mother and his brothers in Nazareth. He was never seen again in Tiberias. He did return, once, to Magdala. That is it for this special episode of Retelling the Bible. Of course, Miriam's story continues on from this in future chapters of the book. She does indeed see the young laborer from Nazareth again, and that leads to many changes for her. But she has a lot yet to live through before that can happen. As I say, I would love to share the rest of her story with the world, but I would like to do that by publishing my book in a way that will get it to a larger audience. If you know of any ways to help me to do that, I'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to Gabrielle McCandless who read today's episode so well. Join us at the end of next month as we explore another biblical story that I believe is a key to understanding so much in the Bible. In the meantime, Tell other people and rate and review this episode on iTunes or some other platform to help other people find it. The theme music for the podcast is Ada. The theme music is Leaving Home. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible, or through responding to the show notes that have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This has been Retelling the Bible, and I am your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.